Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Professor David Zimmer's life had been upended. After losing his wife and children in a plane crash, he fell into a routine of depression and isolation, an alcoholic stupor. Not surprisingly, he contemplated suicide. After all, he was essentially burying himself alive already. Then one night in 1988, he saw a clip of an old Hector Mann film on television. A silent uh, film comedian long considered dead after disappearing without a trace in 1929. The clip made him laugh, something he hadn't done in a long time, and it gave him an idea. He decided to watch all of Mann's films and write a book about him, which drew him even deeper into the missing man's life. After the book was published, Professor Zimmer got a call from a woman claiming to be the presumed dead man's wife. She invited him to fly out to their New Mexico home and meet him. Although he really didn't believe someone missing for 60 years might still be around, he accepted, if only to hear the story about man's disappearance. It turned out the rising film star had been engaged to one woman while seeing another one. When his fiancée accidentally shot the girlfriend, man felt responsible and helped dispose of the body before leaving town for good with a false identity. Since no one made the connection, he was never pursued, except by his own guilt. As atonement, he vowed never to work in the public eye again. He worked at lowly jobs to get by until he met a woman who recognized him, a woman of means who was able to support him, a woman who realized the only way to bring him out of the depths of his despair was for him to make movies again. They set up a small studio at their ranch where he made more than a dozen films with one caveat consistent with his vow. The public would never see them. In fact, upon his death, they were to be burned. The idea being that never having been seen, it would be just as if the films had never been made. Of course, the truth changes Professor Zimmer's life in ways that he could never have imagined, especially when man dies soon after the telling. What a soap opera, right? Why hasn't anyone made a movie out of this guy's life story? It reads like one of those vacation novels you can't put down. And for good reason. It is. It's pure fiction. The title is The Book of Illusions by Paul Oster. Uh, It's totally believable, though. And it'll be the kind of book that'll hook you from the beginning, from the opening line, everyone thought he was dead. You know, it's a lot more believable to a lot of people than our Old Testament story of a of a sheep herder that God speaks to by way of a mysterious burning bush on a remote mountainside. And then, reluctantly and through a series of miraculous events, frees millions of people from slavery. And yet that one's the true story. The interesting thing is that it is in the parallels that Hector Mann's story shares with the story of Moses. Moses was a rising star in the Egyptian political scene. Forty years earlier, he'd been plucked from the Nile River where he was found floating in a little reed basket. He was raised by Pharaoh's own daughter as a prince. His birth mother was located and enlisted as a nursemaid for Moses, a task that generally lasted as long as three years. During, uh, surely during that time, his mother would have shared stories of his heritage and his people, the Hebrew people. The story then talks about a new Pharaoh, which actually corresponds to a real-world change of dynasties back about 1558 B.C., the real-life time of Moses and the real-life exodus of God's people. This new pharaoh didn't remember the ancient promise of welcome and shelter his ancestors had offered the Hebrews going back as far as 400 years, all the way to Joseph's day. Now, who would have guessed 
that was all part of God's plan to free his people from slavery. That everything that happened in Moses' life was just part of his preparation for that big moment, uh, his call from God. Moses had received the best schooling available, all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And then one day a 40-year-old Moses found himself on Egypt's most wanted list. He came across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. Moses chose which heritage he would embrace that day, killing the Egyptian, burying his body in the sand, and like man, going on the run, wanting to disappear from public life into obscurity forever. Moses fled to Midian, where he took on a lowly job of shepherding. He meets a girl, falls in love, and lives off the radar for 40 years. These couldn't have been easy years for the former prince. Imagining a, imagine a promising future leader who might have had it all, uh, but instead serving all those years as a humble shepherd. And Moses learned patience out in the wilderness. He learned humility. And he learned a lot about the land that he would one day lead God's people through. God was training, he was testing, and he was strengthening Moses for the years ahead, even though at the time it's hard to imagine that Moses could have appreciated it. And then when God was ready, when God's people were ready, and when Moses were ready, he called his chosen leader. People who serve God in a special way often find it difficult to appreciate God's purposes for them, especially when their labors go unnoticed or maybe unappreciated. But God always knows what he's doing. And he won't call people without first uh, preparing them, enabling them, even when that preparation might go unrecognized. And so, in the parallel world of ancient Moses and the almost modern-day Hector Mann, we've seen Act 1, the rising star. We've seen Act 2, fleeing into obscurity as a result of death. But for man, there was no third act. He died in obscurity. Not so with Moses. God wasn't finished with him yet. Not by a long shot, in fact. Moses was about to be used in his own Act 3. God wasn't going to let him lick his wounds forever. That wasn't part of the plan. His plan involved one last starring role. In the preceding chapter of Moses' story, God had heard the urgent cries of his enslaved people for deliverance. They were just where he needed them. Where things were, don't, when, when things are going well, you know, people don't feel much need to turn to God, do they? But when they get squeezed, that's when they tend to go to their knees. God was about to reveal his power and his majesty to them, rebuild them into a people of his own. Like the new Pharaoh, uh, after generations in Egypt, this, this latest batch of Hebrews didn't really remember how God had once been revered among them. That's not unlike recent generations today, second and third generations of people for whom God hasn't been a part of their lives, you know, for whom things maybe haven't gotten to the place that will drive them to their knees. And we pray for these people. You know, shame on their parents, maybe. And maybe even their parents. But they're still a people that God has never stopped calling to to saving faith. People of free will who just haven't seen the need for God in their lives yet. Likewise, the ancient Hebrews in Egypt had seen generation after generation of plenty. They grew in number, and as they grew in number, they began to grow further and further away from God. Maybe there had just been so many years of plenty, they'd forgotten where it all came from. The new Pharaoh only saw them as a threat to his rule and his kingdom. And so God allowed them to be enslaved. He also knew that they would soon endure a wilderness journey back to him, following a most unlikely but uniquely qualified leader, one who had been raised to be an Egyptian ruler himself. And so as happens with most uh, human encounters with the divine, Moses found himself in the presence of God quite unexpectedly. 
The time had come to light a fire under this reluctant servant. Out tending flocks of his father-in-law at Horeb in the, uh, one day, a mountain range that included a peak called Sinai. Moses spots a bush on the mountain that appeared to be on fire but wasn't burning up. Now, that would be a miracle in itself and one worth investigating. And so up the mountain, Moses goes. But when he draws near, God speaks to him through that bush, calling him by name. You know, granted, when you first read this story, it sounds like an odd way for God to start a conversation with Moses, doesn't it? But the encounter, as it happened, tells us a lot about God. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in, the flame, in a flame of fire. Now that expression, angel of the Lord, is used in the Old Testament for the second person of the triune God, Christ, before he was born into the flesh that first Christmas morning. In all those verses, God and Lord are used interchangeably, and so we know that the angel of the Lord means God himself in a special manifestation of his presence. As Moses draws closer, he's told to take off his sandals. Uh, because he was now standing on holy ground. In those days when people encountered a holy place, they would remove their sandals as a sign of deep respect. When God first made himself known to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Moses couldn't even bear to look up. These men were the forefathers of Israel, the same God who had spoken to these men, and who had been silent for hundreds of years was now speaking to Moses. God assures him that he will rescue his people from their slavery in Egypt, that he would bring them to a rich land flowing with milk and honey, the very land promised to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. God was calling Moses to be the one to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. The same God is the one we stand before and we, we approach him and worship today, who will make himself known to us these days through his holy word, through scripture, a God who promises to do great and wondrous things for you and I. Moses reacts the same way you and I would. Overwhelmed with God's appearance, he says, uh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and, and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Remember many years before this, Moses had wanted to take on the job of deliverer all by himself when he killed that Egyptian, but was later rebuffed for simply trying to settle an argument between uh, two of his own people. They just didn't accept him as his own people yet. Now he's faced with his own doubts and abilities, his qualifications. There's no cape hiding underneath his robes. He knows that, and he knows he's just a man. But God's assurances seem to say that he isn't going to need a cape. He says, I will be with you. And he even gives Moses a sign as a pledge. When you have brought the people out of Egypt on this same mountain, you will worship me. This is the same place where God's people would receive his law, as his covenant people. Moses would bring down from the mountain the Ten Commandments. Moses is thinking this through. He asked God what he should say to the Israelites in case they asked for the name of God, the God of their fathers. Now think of what Moses is asking here. Because he probably was. Uh, it would be a matter of life or death to try and leave Egypt. Mostly they figured it would be death. Moses had been gone for 40 years. And now he was not only out of touch, but when he left, he was an outlaw. There, wasn't, there weren't very many Israelites around who would even remember who he'd once been. They would be asking for his credentials, and many of them would, would certainly think that he was an imposter. How could he identify with the one true God? The only thing the current generation of Israelites had known was many gods. Gods of rocks and trees, of rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, gods of the harvest, gods of fertility. 
But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob isn't a God of nature. The one true God is a God of history, a God who already acted in history to create a people of his own who is about to act again to free them from slavery and oppression. So God reveals his name to Moses, his own revelation of his name and himself. I am who I am. Simple, but kind of mysterious, right? There's a a, a whole world of truth, though, in those few words about God who speaks of himself this way. I am, God declares. He's an I, a personal being. He can't really be reduced to some indefinite force or some magical power out there somewhere in nature. Like a lot of people believe. People you probably know who profess to believe that, well, there might be something out there, but they aren't willing to take God at his word for what that something or who that something really is. As a person, God is comparing himself to people who think, who feel, who speak, who decide, and who act. I am who I am. These words also speak to, to God's absolute independence. You can't put him in a box or, or restrict him to a statue or a shrine. The Apostle Paul would write to the Romans, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I am, God says, not I will be. For I have been, I am. God is timeless. He's constant. And he's unchangeable. The past, the present, and the future, they're all the same to him. And he's in them all, in the moment. In the book of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. For Moses and for the Israelites he was being sent to, these qualities that God revealed were to assure the people that the promises of grace and mercy given to their fathers were still in effect, that God hadn't forgotten them. And now he was about to demonstrate to them that every one of those gracious promises would be fulfilled. It's a few words, but they're powerful words. God knew that Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go without a fight either. It would take a powerful series of miracles before he would give in plagues, even death of the firstborn before his will would be broken. And on top of that, he tells Moses that he'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Hebrew people so that they wouldn't have to make that trek out into the wilderness empty-handed. Their former slave masters would be plundered of gold, silver, and clothing. Moses will offer some, some more excuses if we read a little further along, but God won't have any of it. You know, it's like Like you can run from God's call, but you can't hide. He'd been preparing Moses for this moment his whole life. Uh, His adoption by Pharaoh's daughter in the face of an order that all Hebrew baby boys were to be thrown into the Nile as a brutal measure of population control. His education and the knowledge and ways of the Egyptians. He'd been raised in the palace to be a leader someday. His connection to his Hebrew roots when his own mother was located and brought to the palace to nurse him as a baby his flight from Egypt into the very land that he would one day lead his people uh, in their wilderness wanderings, his education and, and, and in patience and humility as a lowly shepherd. All these things had led Moses to become the right man at the right time to stand before Pharaoh, sharing God's demand to let my people go. 
Uh, can we blame Moses for being human, for hesitating when God was about to raise the curtain on Act 3 of his life? Uh, it must have been like, you know, really, God? A- another beginning? But God isn't finished with him yet. In fact, all his life experience had been, he had been getting him ready, preparing him for this moment. It was going to be dangerous. It was going to be risky. He'd already been rejected by his people back in his royal family days when their freedom first had come into his mind. How could he be sure that they wouldn't reject him again? Well, we know how the story ends because in many ways it's our story too. How we tend to wander away from God and how God seeks us out to bring us back through the work of his spirit. Do you suppose, do you suppose we'll ever, we can ever get to the place in our lives when we can be certain that God is finished with us? Or should we be content to look at our lives and think, what has God been preparing me for next? See, from God's point of view, he simply sees hurting people and he cares. And no one is too old that, that he or she can't be used to help. He doesn't want you to celebrate your 65th birthday and then say, well, it's time to shelve you until your number comes up. It doesn't work like that. Uh, Moses was in his 80s. He appealed to some kind of speech impediment he had. God said, who made your mouth? I did. And I'll put the words in there that you need to say. Better yet, he said, take your brother Aaron. He's a great speaker. No one is too disabled. No one is too young. He won't look at you and say, well, we better throw this one back just a small fry. He can't make a difference. He's too young. Won't happen. Jeremiah balked at God's call too. He protested, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. And the Lord said to him, don't say you're only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them for I'm with you and I will rescue you. Maybe you think you're too sinful. The Lord called the prophet Isaiah, complete with the vision of of the the heavenly throne room. God seated on the throne, angels flying all around. Uh, Isaiah had only one thought, this vision of heaven. Woe to me, I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But then God demonstrated forgiveness to Isaiah, and he used him in powerful ways. God cares. And God sees and he acts. It's it's who he was and who he is and who he always will be. And he still speaks. He may not call to you through a burning bush, but he will speak to you through his word. Through the Holy Spirit, scripture is our link to God's will today. When God calls, don't avoid it. Don't despise it. And don't ignore it. God's word assures us that when God decides to light a fire under you, you'll know it. But don't worry. It won't let you burn up or burn out. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God pass us all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, We'll continue with our next song.